All right, so you hear, you heard it from Mike first. Very soon, there's going to literally be a course where we just make you write stuff so that you can learn empathy. Call it the, the Mike Cole Empathy Crash Course. It'll take place on a cruise ship. To those who can hear me, I say, do not despair. The misery that is now upon us is but the passing of greed, the bitterness of men who fear the way of human progress. The hate of men will pass and dictators die. And the power they took from the people will return to the people. Because history has shown us that courage can be contagious. And hope can take on a life of its own. I will bring you hope, hope. And I ask only one thing in return. We move now, together. Not at all. Hope is not lost today. It is found. Hope is what keeps you going. Even if the whole world is telling you to move, it's your duty. Plant yourself like a tree. Look them in the eye and say no. You move. Welcome to the Skiffy and Fanny Show. Magical medieval mecca with Mike Cole. I'm Sean. I'm Paul. And our special guest today is none other than the illustrious Mike Cole. Hey guys, thanks for having me. Absolutely. So, so Mike, you wrote a book. Yeah, I've, I've done a few of them this far. I mean, just a couple. Yeah, I keep doing it. I know, it's just a strange thing with you. so you have a brand new book out it's coming out from tor.com called the armored saint we actually i think technically heard about this book many many years ago maybe five years ago in a secret conversation at a Worldcon, i believe yeah uh so this has been a long time coming and so i actually want to start with two things first having you tell us a little bit about the book and then also telling us kind of the journey of how the book came to be all of these many years later Okay, great. And thanks, actually, because those are two things I, I'm excited to talk about. The book itself, it's a, it's a dark medieval fantasy, and it's a world in which a divine emperor has driven the devils back into hell and drawn a veil across the two worlds to prevent them from attacking us in our world. Uh, wizards can reach into hell to channel the magic there, but when they do so, they risk a portal opening in their eye and the devils coming through and re-entering our world. And a draconian religious order known as the Order rises to stop wizards from putting humanity at risk, risking becoming gateways for these devils. And they, if they find out even the tiniest whiff of wizardry, they'll kill you, they'll kill your family, they'll burn your village to the ground, they'll leave no two stones standing atop one another. And the protagonist of the story, Elwaz Factor, is a little girl growing up in this world who sees how draconian and awful the order is and decides to stand against them but just because the order is cruel doesn't mean they're wrong and wackiness ensues for me so and i've spoken about this before and i think i the years ago when i was talking to you guys in san antonio about the idea back then by the way the title of the book was the fractured girl not the armored saint and uh, one of the funny stories here is that tour when i went to them with that title were like yeah we want to change it. And I was like, what do you want to change it for? It's a great title. And then they said, no, you know, first of all, Helwaz is a young woman with an incredible amount of agency. And girl is a term that's really used as a diminutive to kind of take power away from women and young women as they're, as they're coming into adulthood. And it's really not something we, you know, we want to be thrown out there right now. And also every single book, that's popular right now. It has girl in the title. <laughs> girl, dragon tattoo, gone girl, girl on a train. You know, 
And it, it and I, you know, I was kind of like, oh man, I really like that title. We came up with the Armored Saint, which I also liked, and uh, and that's the title. And then I was so grateful because uh, I think it was just a month ago, Tor.com tweeted a picture of like the bestsellers. Uh, rack at, at Target or something, and every single book had the word "girl" in the title. Uh, but but what what brought me to it was, you know, you guys know that I built my reputation on military stories, on these hard, hard, very realistic, authentic military stories, and I gotten a lot of praise for them, for the authenticity, for the fact that it's a, a you know a, a truly military um, flavor, and that it feels very authentic and real. And I think at the time that I was writing, with the exception of maybe Brad Torgerson, I was the only in-uniform uh, science fiction and fantasy writer writing for one of the New York, big New York houses. Actually, back then, I think Brad had not yet signed with Bain Books, so maybe I was the only one. I'm not, I don't want to swear to that. But what happens is, is that when you go into every interview and everybody's like talking about your military authenticity over and over and over again, you start to think, well, man, is that all there is to it? Like, are people reading me because I'm a good writer or are people reading me because I'm authentic? And you really start to get this kernel of doubt um, because the reality of it is, is that while my military experience, I mean, I'm very proud of my military stories and my military experience is incredibly important to me. It certainly is only one aspect of who I am and what I want to do with my life. And so I, it became super important to me, super important to me to prove to myself by proving to my readership that I could do something else. And so I set out to write this book. And because, you know, it was really stretching the envelope for me, it took me a long time to get it right, Sean. I mean, you, you remember talking to me about it all those years ago, and I know you were pretty happy with the idea back then. But think about it. I mean, you know, a lot of times it takes me about a year or two to execute a novel. This took me, you know, three or more years to get this to the point where I could uh, finally convince a publisher to take it on. But I'll tell you, now that someone did, it's so it's so gratifying for me to, to be able to check that box and say to myself, you know, there's more to me than, than just military stuff. I do remember that was a big concern for you, is that maybe all I'm going to be is the military fantasy guy. And I imagine that's a thing that many writers struggle with, is when they get popular for one thing, they worry that they can't escape that thing. They just have to keep doing different versions of that thing. So it's very nice to see that we're now here and you're saying, nope, I can do this other thing too. And it's badass. <laughs> the truth is I have a lot of writers as great examples for that. Um, look, I sort of famously don't get along with Larry Correa, but one thing I admire about him is he did his Monster Hunter thing, right? And really built his stock and trade in it. And then he came out with Son of the Black Sword, which is this completely left turn into a classical fantasy universe, which I hear is really good. Or you take Jim Butcher, who has his Harry Dresden stuff, and then you have his um, Codex Alera, which is a completely different world. And I, I really, those kinds of um, track records really inspire me to, to feel like I could do the same thing. Well, that's uh, one thing I wanted to ask was, since this was such a different type of work than you've been publishing before, I was wondering, what was the kind of process for you to kind of sit down and say, I'm going to write a secondary world epic fantasy versus, you know, a, a military fantasy set essentially in, in the now? Oh, uh, well, that's easy. The answer is imitation, imitation, imitation. The, the truth is that when you write a, uh, a, an urban fantasy set in the now, your world building is cut in half, right? Because you're drawing on, you know, existing structure. And uh, that makes your life way, way, way easier. 
when you're building a secondary world, you actually have to build that world. And that is something I've had experience doing, you know, in my amateur days, but never as a pro. But I knew, so, you know, I do what I think almost all writers do is you take your examples, you take the tones and the, the things that inspire you. And anyone who has seen the cover of, Ar- of the Armored Saint with El Waz in that oversized power armor, uh, so many people have been commenting, this looks like Warhammer, this looks like Warhammer 40K. And you're goddamn right it does, because that is the universe, that that is the tone, that is the guidepost for me um i looked at that i love the warhammer and the warhammer 40,000 gaming universes super dark gothic almost hopeless feeling and uh, i took that and i sort of made it my own and overlaid it with a lot of my own knowledge of you know a lot of historians will choke me for saying this dark ages merovingian carolingian period european history i also have a, a non-fiction book coming out in the fall from osprey called Legion versus Phalanx, which is ancient warfare. But the the process of, of researching nonfiction sort of taught me how to delve into the details of, of a real pre-industrial society. And sort of those two main influences combining kind of helped me come up with something that, which I think is really cool and, and really unique and hopefully feels realistic to the readers. Awesome. You've half answered two of my questions, but maybe you can go into a little bit more detail. So besides Warhammer 40k, what deliberate models did you use to create the Divine Emperor, the Empire, the Pilgrims, and the other bits of the world that we see? I mean, look, a lot of it is the nascent church, the zealous church. And one of the things, um, when I was in uh, in grad school, I taught, TA'd rather, a medieval faith and symbolism class. And uh, I don't know if you guys remember the book A World Lit Only by Fire, which is a wonderful summation of the medieval mind. It sort of helps people to understand how people could be that religious. It's really funny. When I was doing counterterrorism work in Iraq and we're, we're going up against these jihadis and these uh, modists who, who you know, worship Muqtada al-Sadr, and as an American, as a Westerner, you can't believe how people could believe in religion to that degree. And I kind of had an advantage because when you look at the medieval world and you really understand how people approached it, it sort of helps you make that leap that you don't understand when you're in a modern Western culture. But I love that early, super zealous church that you find in the works of the church fathers. And I'm talking about Boethius's Constellation of uh, Philosophy. I'm talking about Ammianus Marcellinus. I'm talking about Anselm of Canterbury. I'm talking about the Book of Marjorie Kemp. I'm talking about Thomas Aquinas. Uh, I mean, he's a scholastic, but you get these early... Oh, Augustine of Hippos and Caridian of Faith, Love, uh, and Hope. These early, early works of the of the early medieval church when, when people are kind of trying to figure out what the faith means. And, you know, what it means is <laughs> we're beset on all sides and we're not taking any shit. So we're coming at this thing with a hammer. And that that's something that the Warhammer 40K and Warhammer Universe have done a great job of evoking. And I really loved uh, getting a chance to bring it to life in my own way. That's great. I, I did notice and as I was reading it, and you kind of touched on this already, there's a lot of European continental naming conventions. You mentioned the, the Palatinate and, and other things that just gave it a very continental European feel, um, which is a little different than a lot of fantasy, which often goes for Celtic, English, or whatnot. So why, why go for European continent, which is not as usually chosen over the British Isles? Because, uh, and again, I think this is the Warhammer universe's uh, influence. Warhammer is so 
distinctly Germanic, right? And when you go back early into the Dark Ages, you know, the Merovingian and Carolingian worlds are sort of Franco-Germanic. Um, it's a proto-Germanic. And I loved, I loved that dark, dark tone. However, I was also really careful, um, you know, one of the characters, Clodio, in the book talks a lot about traveling to the, the deserts of the Algalifes and talking about how uh, they live. So there certainly is a world beyond the European influence here. And it's something I hope in later books I'll get a chance to explore. As, and one of my big influences for that was um, Peter V. Brett's The Demon Cycle, where you begin in you know, his, his land of Thessa and you, you see his main characters, but you'll be in Croatia pretty soon and get to see, you know, um, I guess, the, the east of Pete's world. And that's, uh, that's definitely something I, I would love, given the chance to do in my own stuff. So is there a map of this world? In my head. It's funny, uh, Tor actually asked me if I wanted to commission a map for the story. And I elected not to in this case, just because the battle space and the, uh, the landscape of the story is so small and tight. And uh, I didn't really feel like it, it was a sprawling epic enough to warrant a map. But, you know, who knows? Maybe, maybe sometime in the future. Yeah, I mean, I, I, mean, I have a note here. It's not necessary for this story because it's relatively tight and uh, narrow focus. But you do imply a much larger world, the Empire. You mentioned there's lands beyond the empire and i i'm very curious as to what this world looks like because you know i'm all about the maps uh, and you're gonna see you're gonna see a lot more of it in the sequel the queen of crows which is done and uh, i've actually seen the cover which hopefully we'll have a reveal of very soon and uh, i'm working on lee harris who's my editor's um edits as we speak so i'm hoping uh that manuscript will be finalized literally in the next couple of weeks or so most excellent well, that's exciting. We were going to ask you about that. When are we going to get to go back? And you just told us. Well, yeah. I and mean, Well, the contract is for three books. So The Queen of Crows is, is basically done. And The Killing Light, which is the sequel to The Queen of Crows, will be the third book in the trilogy, is outlined really extensively. I haven't started prose on that, but as soon as I execute the edits to Queen of Crows and turn that in, I'll be turning around and starting to write that. That's very exciting. Awesome. So to kind of switch to some more specifics about the story, you know, you kind of mentioned in one of your answers that, you know, there's a kind of darkness to this world. And one of the questions that I really kind of wanted to dig into, and this is partly coming from Jen and partly from myself, that there seems to be a kind of clear line between this society and the kind of post 9-11 America. Maybe not, but th this is kind of what we we saw um, in terms of the way in which a society will restrict its freedoms in exchange for the illusion or in or perhaps the reality of safety without any real apparent consequences for a system of government that seems to rely very heavily on brutality. And so I was wondering if you could kind of talk a bit about how you came to see this as a central focus for the story as you were constructing it and then obviously continuing through the years kind of building it. Yeah, and look, this is something that Peter Brett has said about. I've talked about Warhammer 40K and Warhammer as being huge influences, but anybody who knows me or has read the acknowledgments in any of my previously published books knows that Peter B. Brett and I have been best friends, bordering on brothers for almost our entire lives. And he's a major, major influence on me. And his writing is a major, major influence on me, too. And that is a central theme in what Pete does, this idea that freedom is exchanged for security. And in fact, in numerous interviews, Pete has talked about one of the core influences for The Warded Man, the first book in his Demon Cycle series, has been that very thing. That idea that when the towers came down, there were people who ran away and people who ran towards. And he was really interested in the impulse that made them run towards. So yes, it is absolutely influenced by the, the times in which we live. And a lot of people have drawn comparisons between that idea and my first six novels, 
the uh, the Shadow Ops and the and the Reawakening trilogy, both of which deal with you know magic coming back into the world and the government clamping down and people sort of letting the government run roughshod over civil liberties because you know we have to protect everybody from magic. Now, while I started this before the Trump administration came into power, though, it's pretty incredible, right? Because now what we have is a administration that's come into power and that is so corrupt and so awful and so like beyond the pale of of what's decent and allowable by normal social standards that they're actually inventing fears out of whole cloth, right? You know, it's very, very plain to see that we are not facing a terrorist threat the way we were on 9-11. Um, and I say that as someone who's been professionally in the field of counterterrorism for most of my most of my adult life. And you see the administration beating that drum again and again and again and again to justify these incredible abuses of power. And um, I didn't intend that, but sort of retroactively, a reader of the Armored Saint could sort of think, well, you know, are the devils really real? Are they that much of a threat? Are they a legend that the order is really um, playing up to sort of justify their own power. And again, I don't want to take credit for that comparison because it's it's too convenient, but uh, I, I'm kind of amazed. You know, we talk about life imitating art, right? Well, and, and in some cases, uh, life doing things that normally would not qualify as a plot. You would imagine that if, if you wrote the story of America right now, someone would say that plot doesn't make sense. Yeah, that's right. An editor would reject it for being too over the top. It's it's too ridiculous. What are you doing? This is an SNL skit. This isn't this isn't a real story. What are you doing? A rolled up copy of Forbes? You got to be kidding me! <laughs> oh God, yes. <laughs> oh no. Oh, that's great. Um, so I I guess I kind of tack on a question to this. I don't know if that this is the case for you, but maybe it is. You know, writing fiction uh, on some level, do you find that it is helpful to you as a as a human being, a person, like a, on a kind of therapeutic level to write stories? Because I, th- I think of it in terms of, of this work and many of your works, often your characters are sort of put in this position where they're asked to sort of face seemingly insurmountable odds in really horrific cases. And it's not, you know, that happens in many kinds of stories, but it seems to me that maybe on some level it's a way of dealing with the reality that oftentimes we we, we feel like we're not in control of the reality we live in. We're just kind of passengers. I mean, yes, but not in the way you, well, on, on two ways. One is the way you think and one isn't the way you think. The way you think is that my entire life has been in armed service, uniformed service, Right now, I'm with uh, a large metropolitan police department, and I am every day sometimes on the side of the Imperial stormtroopers, right? And I'm frequently, especially given the relationships that police have with the public, especially now, right, with what ICE is doing and, and what the Trump administration is doing. And so I'm often forced to confront my duty to the organizations that I've vowed to serve. And, you know, and I must do my job, right? I must do it well. I can't go in there having a crisis of conscience and, and fucking it up. That's, that's, I can't do it. Um, I'd, I'd have to self-select and take myself out of those organizations before I could allow myself to deliberately fail to perform my duties to the best of my ability. So maybe some of what you're seeing in my fiction is me working out that conflict. But if that's happening, it really is happening subconsciously. I'm not sitting down, you know, getting out my defiant strategies or my revenge strategies it's not strategies, excuse me, fantasies in my writing. You know, I really feel like I have a 
good enough relationship with my superiors and my organizations that when I have issues, I talk to them about it. And I, um, you know, I stake my positions in my organizations pretty well. What writing does for me, rather, is it, it channels and focuses and gives me a sense of purpose and a sense of being connected to something beyond that kind of, of service. And it also provides me with a crucible that I don't have the option, I, I really don't have anymore. The reality of it is, is that, you know, I have, I've been off patrol for whoosh, about two years now from the Coast Guard. And that was always like this incredible, hard, draining, intensely challenging thing where you're underway doing 40 knots, you know, 10 degrees below zero in January at three o'clock in the morning. And that coming up against that intense and powerful difficulty that really, you know, stressed me to the bone was this incredible reward to me. And um, I miss it. I miss it like hell. And doing cyber investigations, which is what I'm doing now, computer crime is fascinating, but it doesn't have the same stakes. It doesn't have the same punch to me. Sometimes it does when we get into really big, cool stuff and it's very tense. But writing for me is this hard, intractable, you know, impossible mountain to climb. And the goals I have for it seem so out of my reach to the point where I do feel some of that, I don't know, sense of conquering the impossible that I did when I was, you know, pulling somebody out of freezing water when I was in the Coast Guard. And that to me is cathartic. And that to me is therapeutic. And that to me is like, I don't know, something that gets me up in the morning. That's a hell of an answer, Mike. Yeah, I've got a, <laughs> I've got a gobsmacked here. Thanks. Uh, I'm a writer. we couldn't have told that before now we know for sure (laughs) okay i want to ask about mecca but i know that that's a paul question so i'm gonna let paul ask that one yes i mean going going into this novel i saw the cover i thought that there was just a suit of armor and i remember seeing some comments on twitter it's like well that suit of armor doesn't look good on her. What is what? What's with all of that? She doesn't, it doesn't look great. And then when I get to read the story, it's like, oh my god, she's in a mecca. She's in this medieval magical fighting thing. Yep. And, and I, I was just like, oh my god, you you went there. So tell me how you decided to create the war engines, how you came up with their design and their purpose and use. Okay, so there's there's two big influences there, or three big influences there rather, and I'm sure you'll recognize all of them. Well, one of them, of course, is, once again, Warhammer 40K and Warhammer, which one of the things I love about it is is that it mixes without abandoning. It's not steampunk. It isn't abandoning the, the truly medieval character of the Warhammer universe. But, you know, the squats, which became the dwarves, um, you know, they have canon. They have arquebuses are a thing, just like they were in, in the real Renaissance world. And if you look at the orc equivalent of the Titans, in Warhammer 40k, they're these kind of like crappy steam-powered semi-medieval dreadnoughts. A second thing for me is I had been a massive Macross Robotech fan. Yes. From the beginning of anime, and I just love it. I never got into Gundam. Like, I was a little bit of a Voltron guy, so like, you know, Pacific Rim didn't really grab me. I liked it all right, but like, old Robotech, original Macross Robotech before Invid, before um, Southern Cross. I just love that stuff. Um, and I love that when they're in the full Valkyrie mode the, and the Veritex, you know, you're sort of, you have your limbs extended and you're moving it. But the, the third thing, the third main influence, which is really what I had in my mind when I was designing what these things would do and what they would look like, was, of course, the loader from Aliens, the second Aliens, the Sigourney Weaver in it, right? 
Everybody loved that thing. I was electrified the first time I saw that thing. And obviously it wasn't intended as a um, combat model. Of course, he finds a way to use it as a combat model. But I just love that idea of it being an extension of its own limbs. And I think that those influences combined for me to think of. And, and, and I guess the, the big thing I, I knew is that I needed to beat Helwa's into the ground, right? I mean, the, the way you make an interesting protagonist and the way that you make conflict is you really beat up on that protagonist. And if I'm trying to take a little girl here, well, she's not a little girl. I mean, she's a, a young woman, but she's physically smaller than the men in her world and make her powerful. I had to augment her. I had to superpower her. And I was thinking of ways to do it. And all of those things clicked together because if Sigourney Weaver can take on not just the, an alien, but the queen mother of aliens with this exoskeleton around her. Well, that seems like a pretty good solution to introduce here. It does make me feel like this is a superhero origin story. And we get her beginning, we get her go through trials. She goes with us and finally at the end, she finally gets to actually upgrade and become a badass. <laughs> well, I can't, I can't spoil anything, Paul. All I can tell you is that the second book is written, and uh, you'll see the cover soon, and that will give you some indications of what's happening next. <laughs> I'm, I'm really excited. I mean, the influence that I was thinking of, you didn't mention it, was the role-playing game Exalted, which there are some ancient battlesuits lying around, and some that are a couple of polities like Lukshai have that Exalts can get into and beat up crap with. So I was like, oh my god. Because you made this not like a clock punk or steampunk, you made this strictly magical materials. You have that those magical rocks that actually power the suit. So I think, oh, it's like an Exalt power suit. And I'll have to check it out. I'll have to check it out. But the truth is, is that like power armor is a tried and true, you know, genre thing that people love so much so that John Joseph Adams did an anthology called Armored, I think, uh, a few years back. Yep. Which, by the way, I tried out for and didn't get into, and I was gutted because uh, it's just such a thing that, uh, look, power armor is really cool, man. Like, <laughs> I really like it. Um, and it's something, but it is something that you don't see in dark medieval fantasies. So it was a cool way to kind of twist things together. And I think that the, the science and the mechanics that I came up with for making it work resonate realistically to the point where readers won't get thrown out of the story. But we'll have to see people's reactions when the book comes out. Well, so uh, speaking of your main character, you know, she gets to be a badass, as Paul eloquently pointed out. It's really cool. But it, one of the things I wanted to ask is following through your career, right, because we interviewed you, I believe, for the very first book of your military fantasy. And we've kind of watched you, you know, begin with, you know, this one character and then kind of switch different characters as you kind of branched out. And now we're getting a very different character from anything you've ever written before right? A 16-year-old lesbian girl. And so I was curious about how you approached writing this this quite different point of view from, you know, your sort of career. It's a kind of departure from, I, I think this is the youngest point of view character you've even written, too. Yeah. So, look, Sean, I'm scared out of my mind. I, I don't mind telling you. <laughs> Every single book I've done, and I've said this before, I have striven to push the envelope in terms of what characters I embody. And my holy grail here is George R. R. Martin, who is writing from the point of view of, of a guy who's afflicted with dwarfism. He's writing from the point of view of a haughty queen. He's writing from the point of view of all these people who are nothing like them. And he's doing them, doing it with sun sensitivity that it really resonates with people, right? And that it, it's believable and it, and people are really responding to it. And that's what I want to do. And I, I must do it. And if you look at Siege Line, the real main character of that story, 
is uh, a 40-something Dene woman in the, in the hinterlands of Canada who's an Afghanistan vet. So she's a First Nations woman. She's, you know, around my age. She's been to Afghanistan, and she's grown up in the ass end of Canada her whole life. I couldn't think of anything more different from me, and I was terrified writing her. Well, it's the same thing here. And look, how do you do it? You do it exactly how you think you do it. Um, you get curious and you ask questions. And I don't know if I pulled it off. I won't know until I see audience reactions to how I pulled it off. But I talk to people, right? I talk to my niece, who's, <laughs> who's uh, 13. I talk to you know other girls around that age group. And I'll, I, I'll never forget, uh, it was probably one of the more awkward conversations, is that I have a, a friend of mine who I know from the hair salon where I go get my hair cut, who is lesbian. And she was kind enough to have lunch with me and introduce me to her friends and like being willing to have long conversations about what it's like to fall in love and what it's like to experience, you know, sexual arousal and, you know, how those things work for her. And just like when I wrote a point of view sex scene from the point of view of a woman in Gemini cell, it was a really cool and enlightening and growth thing for me is that, look, the reality of it is, is these things are not my experience. So, but they are integral to my story and I have to try to tell the best story I can. And the only thing I can do is ask and empathize, right? And try to understand other people's experiences and then do my best to reflect that in the terms of my story. Um, and I'm fortunate enough that I have people who have been willing to talk to me about it. Um, and willing to talk at length and in real detail and embarrassing detail sometimes, right? And again, I, it'll be up to the reader to decide whether or not the execution bears it through in a way that resonates. It certainly did for my editors. Um, it has for a lot of the reviewers that have read it so far. It certainly did for these women who are willing to look at it for me. But, uh, you know, the wider audience will be the judges in the end. The worst case scenario, you'll learn something. That's right. And, and look, that's the thing that makes writing so rewarding for me is that you don't realize how limited your own experience is and how little you think about how other people experience in the world until you're forced to actually get down in there and represent them. You know, I have to speak with your voice, with someone else's voice, which means I have to understand what you're thinking and how you're feeling intimately enough to evoke it convincingly. And that is one of the best crash courses in empathy that a human being can have, I think. All right, so you hear, you heard it from Mike first. Very soon, there's going to literally be a course where we just make you write stuff so that you can learn empathy. <laughs> Call it the, the Mike Cole Empathy Crash Course. It'll take place on a cruise ship. <laughs> hope so. Okay, so uh, we do kind of get a closeout here. Um, so just a kind of last thing. So uh, the back of my book says February is the release date. Do we have a firm date for the release at this point? Yeah, the, the February 20th. February 20th. Perfect. Well, are there, is there anything else? Uh, we, we now know that you've got a sequel coming. And uh, I guess the question is, is there anything else you're working on you want to let folks know about or any conventions or anything like really important you want folks to know so that they can they can hunt it down? All right. So the Armored Saint, yeah, February uh, 20th. The, that'll be followed by the Queen of Crows and the Killing Light. I also have my first nonfiction uh, ancient warfare book, Legion versus Phalanx, which will be coming from Osprey Publishing sometime in the fall. I should be announcing another deal for military science fiction, straight space science fiction, hopefully in the next couple of weeks. And uh, for conventions, I'll be at Life, the Universe, and Everything in Utah in February. 
I will be at Emerald City Comic Con in March. I'll be at the Tucson Festival of Books in March. I will be at Phoenix Comic Con, and you'll, you guys are going to kill me, but I forgot which month that is. I'm so stunned <laughs> on, on all the dates. And uh, just that uh, on social media, I'm available to folks. You can follow me on Twitter at, at Mike Cole. That's M-Y-K-E-C-O-L-E. Uh, friend me on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Mike Cole. And uh, find me at my website, MikeCole.com. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Mike, for, for coming on again and talking to us about this book that we're really excited to see finally uh, coming out. Yeah, thanks for having me. Absolutely. All right, folks. Um, I'm, I don't know. I should say something awkward because I have to make these awkward endings. So stay frosty. Awkward ending. See. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the show. If you'd like to support us, you can find us at patreon.com slash skiffyandfanty. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can do so at our email at skiffyandfanty at gmail.com, on Twitter at skiffyandfanty, and on Facebook at the Skiffy and Fanty Show. Our intro and outro music comes from Dimension by Creo. You can find out more about them at freemusicarchive.org. Yeah.